I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I want to read the verses 45 through to the end of 56, I guess. 45 through 56 of Matthew chapter 27. And here we hear the word of God as follows. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when he heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, then yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were, had, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Thus far the reading of God's word in my text for this morning. I take the words of uh, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. Once again this morning we stand on Calvary's hill. We stand in the shadow of the cross and we hear our Lord crying out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, that is to say, my God. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? And people of God, in this cry, we enter into the holy of holies of Christ's suffering. Christ had been nailed on the cross. And all earthly needs had been attended to. Christ had seen to the needs all around him. There were sinners in need of forgiveness and a pardon was offered. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A penitent criminal criminal was in need of assurance and paradise was promised. Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Today, I tell you, you shall be with me in paradise. A mother was in need of comfort and loving provision was arranged. Woman, behold your son. And from that very hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And we've looked at all of those sayings so far. And all of this having been done, Jesus now advances further along that road of suffering. Deeper and deeper he goes into the valley of judgment. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. The Savior passes on down the road of his humiliation, 
we cannot follow. We wait, we pray, we commit him to God, and suddenly the stillness there is broken, and we hear that startling cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it would be perfectly natural that in this moment when man receded that Christ should reach out to his father. He had done so in the past. <coughs> but this time, as he did so, the God, <coughs> the God who now confronted him in this awful encounter on Calvary was not the God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abundant in mercy. No, here Jesus meets the God of holy indignation and consuming wrath and anger. He meets here the God who was a consuming fire. And as the torrents of divine judgment on sin and the sinner envelop the Son of Man, the suffering is more intense and acute than it has ever been before. We remember the words of the, our confession, and in this context, the catechism answer begins to reverberate in our minds. All of his life he suffered, but especially at the end of his life on the cross. This is his hour of his deepest suffering. The Savior, forsaken by his Father. No one would believe it if he himself not revealed it. Imagine that if you can. The Son of God, forsaken by his Father, God. With Martin Luther, we cry out, God, forsaken by God. Who can understand it? And in these words of Christ, we probe the deepest mystery of our suffering Savior who came from eternity into time in order that he might save his people from their sin. This now finally was his word of conquest. And I want to administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme the word of conquest from the cross. The word of conquest from the cross. And we will discover here the complete humanity of Jesus we want to see the utmost wrath of the divine God. And then yet we'll be blessed to see the plenteous grace of God toward humanity. People of God, the Lord Jesus was crucified at midday. And in the light of Calvary, everything was now revealed in its true character. There on Calvary, the very nature of all things was finally and fully explained. Here we come to know, we come to know the depravity of the human heart. We see man's hatred towards God. Here we taste of man's ingratitude. We see man's, man's loving of darkness rather than light. We learn here of Satan's absolute hostility towards God. We see also the perfection of divine justice. Here at the cross we see God's holiness. We see his wrath, his matchless grace. And finally, here at the cross of Jesus we begin to understand the fearful length to which sin will extend itself. It was a slippery slope. It began with that one sin in paradise. One sin. One seemingly insignificant act of disobedience. And as consequence, all men and women infected. All men and women ruined. The consequence of that one sin first came to expression in suicide. Adam destroyed his own spiritual life. We then saw it again in, in fratricide. Cain killed his own brother. And here now it culminates in deicide. Man slays the Son of God. Who can understand it? 
my dear precious saints of God, what we're called to see here now, first of all, is that as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. By one man sin entered the world, and so death passed upon all men, for they have sinned. You see, had there been no sin, there would have been no death. But man fell. There was sin. There was death. And now we see the, the death of death in the death of the Son of God. Who can understand it? Once again, in order to set the stage, I need to take you back. I need to take you back to the beginning. I need to take you back to the garden before we can understand the drama that unfolds here. Our precious catechism again helps us on our way. The catechism asks, why must the Savior be true man? And the answer follows that God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man has committed. The justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. And the Old Testament sacrifices could not pay for sin. The sin of man could not be punished and atoned in animals. Man had sinned, and man must pay. And now we need to walk carefully for a moment. Christ here cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we call this experience the climax of Calvary. And correctly so, but we do so because, of, because this experience of being cut off from God stand, stands at the very heart and heartbeat of the atonement. I was somewhat discouraged when preparing for this sermon, even a bit frustrated when I realized that a number of my commentaries on my, in my library failed to recognize this. Many expositors argue that the physical death of Christ, that the physical death of Christ here on the cross, that that constitutes the atonement, that, that, but that can't be so. At the very heart of the sacrifice here, the very essence of the divine wrath here being poured out was not Christ's death, but that he was cut off from God. And that needs to come to the fore here. Return with me again to paradise as I try to lay this foundation for you. At the time of man's creation, God entered into a covenant, if you will, with, God, with man. And the terms of the covenant were simply as follows. God said to Adam, if you live righteously before me, in other words, if you obey me, you will be granted immortality. You will live forever. But if you disobey, you will surely die. And at the heart of this covenant lay the very first and great commandment. What was required of Adam was to love God with all of his mind, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. And if Adam did that, if Adam obeyed, he would thereby demonstrate his love to God. But if he disobeyed, he would thereby demonstrate his hatred for God. And you know the story. Adam sinned. He sinned against God. And God, being true to his word, pronounced his sentence. His penalty was, you shall surely die. God's word cannot fail. Adam would die. But, but, but death for Adam did not mean to him what it does for us today. Adam had never witnessed physical death. Adam did never, had never even experienced sickness, and the, and the concept of death, as we know it, was completely foreign to him. Adam lived in a world without a cemetery, he had never seen a funeral procession or a corpse. At the time of this sentence, Adam had not even yet seen a dead animal. 
let alone a, de <coughs> a dead body. The word death for Adam, <coughs> excuse me, the word death for Adam did not bring with it the mental imagery that it does for us. And it's important that we understand that. And if we then ask, what did it mean to Adam when God said, you will surely die? It meant for him exactly what God intended it to mean. It meant separation from God. Sin separates man from God. It is still so today. That's the biblical meaning of death, to be cut off, to be separated from God. People of God tremble not, therefore, at physical death. Fear not those who could only kill the body. No, tremble before spiritual death, for it is to be cut off from God. Fear him then who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. But now Adam, having fallen, in him now lay a twofold tragedy according to our scriptures. Adam, being separated from God, being cut off from the vine that was the source of his strength, found himself withered. The image of God in him became distorted. He lost the excellent ability to love and to serve God. Adam did die spiritually. Oh, his physical death would come many years later, but his spiritual death was instantaneous upon his sin. That, first of all, but equally tragic was it that he would now transmit that corrupt nature to all of his posterity. Not a single soul following him in history, including you, me, and our children, could escape the corruption of Adam. And that now is why we hear David confessing, Behold, behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in, in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's why Paul writes, There is now no one, no one who is righteous, no, not one, because of Adam, because of the fallen paradise. Oh, the situation was hopeless for man. Man had cut himself off from God. And the road back to paradise was not only blocked and barricaded. In fact, the pavement, if you will, had been ripped up. The land had been plowed over. And the road was gone. There was no way back. Man and his posterity, including you and me and our children, had been banished from the garden and the portals to Eden had been blocked and sealed. The angels stood guard at the gates, preventing man's return to paradise. And now here at Golgotha, in silent awe and amazement, we bury our faces in, our, in shame as we see God himself providing the way back. We need to see here the horrible price, the horrible price that had to be paid in order to pave the way back to God. God, through his own son, did what man could no longer do. God would send his son into the world to undo the damage done by the first Adam. It is therefore that he is called the second Adam, or as Paul says, the last Adam. Listen with me now to how Paul describes it in Galatians 4. Paul writes, when the fullness of time was come, that was the first Christmas. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Note carefully here in this context, the words there used by Paul, God sent forth his son made of a woman. All oh, the pieces are slowly, I think, 
beginning to fit together. We know of that woman. She was the woman through which Jesus took human flesh and blood. Through her as instrument in the hands of God, Jesus became a man. We begin to understand man had sinned and man must pay. This now was the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head. He had come in Jesus Christ. He would take his flesh and blood from the woman, the Virgin Mary. Having been born of the Virgin Mary, he remained what he was, very God of very God, but he now became what he was not. He became man. He was born man, like unto his brothers in all things, sin accepted. But then we read, not only was he born of a woman, but also he would be born under the law. What law? People of God, there is but one law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, now Christ, having been born under the law, now stands before the law of love for God in the same way as did Adam. And he stood there as a human. In all of his living now, he was to do what was originally required of Adam. In all of his living, in word, in deed, even in the thoughts and inclinations of his heart, he was to obey the law of God. He was to love God above all. Above all. <coughs> and that he did all of his life. But now having accomplished all of this, standing before God in perfection and in righteousness, holiness, sinlessness, having succeeded where Adam had failed, one thing was yet left for him to do. He must pay the penalty of Adam. Man had sinned and man must pay in Adam's place, in man's place, in your place, in my place. Christ must die. And again, we need to walk carefully. I remind you of the superficial view which I identified earlier. Many see this death of Christ only in the physical sense. His hands and his side were pierced. His soul departs from his body. His body is laid in the grave and in the ground. But, but, and he died. But, but if that's all you see here in the death of Christ, then you have missed the very heart of the vicarious substitu- substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. As we have seen, the true nature of death as God intended it, as Adam understood it, and as Christ would have experienced it here, was separation from God. (coughs) (coughs) Separation from God. That is now, that is now what Christ experienced on the cross in our place. And that now is why we hear his cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Man had sinned. Man must die. Man must be separated from God. Christ, as a man, stands in man's place and is cut off from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father forsakes his son in his greatest hour of need. Why was that now? We can hardly understand it. Just four days earlier, Jesus being distressed because of the impending cross had cried out to his father at Gethsemane and the father had answered with words of comfort. And now in the throes of utter desolation, Jesus again cries out, my God, 
my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And this time, it is only his own voice that echoes in his ears. There is no answer. God is silent. Why? The answer is found when we understand what is happening there on Calvary. The Apostle Paul points us the way. We hear Paul teach us, for God has made him sin. God has made him sin who knew no sin in order that we might be made righteous. My dear people of God, the one great all-inclusive doctrine taught us here is that Jesus became, hear me well, Jesus became everything we were in order that we might become everything that he is. Think of that with me for a moment. Jesus became everything that we were. The Son of God who never committed any sin, who never permitted himself even a sinful thought, who always did the perfect will of the Father, who loved God always with all of his strength, his heart and mind, was now made not sinful, no, not simply. He wasn't simply made sinful, much more infinitely more. He was made to be sin itself. Walk with me here. Try to imagine if you can, if that's possible, try to imagine every sin that has ever been committed in the world being reduced into one nauseous mass. Think of every sinful deed you have committed and will yet commit in thought, in word, and in deed. Paul names some of them in his letter to the Galatians, the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, idolatry, hatred, contentions, jealousies, anger, envy, selfishness, and the like. Distill now all of those sins, yours and mine, yours and mine, into one poisonous brew. And now multiply that times the billions of people that have lived and still live and will yet live on this earth. Smell the putrefying odor of it all. And then you begin to get a faint idea of the revulsion that was in the holy heart of God. The stench of the sin filled God's nostrils and was abhorrent to him. People of God, if we see nothing else here at Calvary, you must see, you must see the holiness of God. The holiness of God as he exhibits it here in his revulsion and his repulsion against sin. My dear people, God gathered with me here in this place this morning. Just as Christ there grappled in the darkness, I hear, I literally grapple in darkness for words to describe to you the holiness of God as we see it here. God is so holy that man cannot look at him and live. God is so holy that the very angels, the cherubim, they shielded their eyes with their wings. God is so holy that we hear those same angels proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Thrice holy is our Lord God. So holy is God that when Abraham stood before him, he cried out, I am but dust and ashes. So holy is God that when Job came into his presence, he said, I abhor myself. When Isaiah was given to see a vision of the glorious holiness of God, he said, Woe is me, I am undone. God is so holy that he is only light and in him there is no darkness at all. The prophet Habakkuk tells us that God is so holy that he cannot look upon any iniquity, any sin. There you have it. There you have it. God is so holy that he cannot look upon any sin. 
Now we have come to the place where the text would have us be this morning. My dear precious people of God, I fear that this concept of the holiness of God is all but lost among contemporary Christianity. We think so lightly of him. We speak so flippantly about him. We dress so casually in his presence because we no longer understand and appreciate the awesomeness, the holiness of this thrice holy God. In this context, we need to understand that God is so holy that he cannot look upon any sin. He cannot stand any sin of any kind. His holy nature is of such a state that it is impossible for him to even look at sin, let alone tolerate it. And now here on Golgotha, that one square foot of ground on which the cross of Jesus stood was the most hated by God's spot in the entire universe. All of the sin of the world was compressed and gathered up, was gathered up and laid upon the Christ on the cross. And all of God's pent up anger against all sin of the world was poured out at that moment upon the Christ. God abandoned by God. Who can understand it, Christ Luther? God turned his back on his son. God abandoned him. And Christ, as Savior of the world, suffered the wrath of God alone. Understand this well with me now. It was because the Savior was bearing our sins, mine and yours, that the thrice holy God could not look at him. Because of our sin, my sin, your sin. Because of our sin, God would not answer him. Because of our sin, because of my sin and yours, God would turn his face from Christ and God would forsake him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was a question which no one standing around the cross could answer. It was a question which as yet none of the disciples would have been able to answer. It was a question that puzzled the angels in heaven. But the Lord Jesus had answered to his own question. His answer is found in Psalm 22. This psalm gives us a wonderful prophetic vision of the suffering Christ. It opens with with uttering the very same words of Christ. Here cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The psalm continues in the same vein with the same heartbreaking sobs until at verse 3 we hear the psalmist crying out, But you are what? You are holy. The psalmist cries not about the injustice of God. He laments not about having been abandoned by God. No, he acknowledges God's righteousness at the cross. And as nowhere else we see the infinite magnitude of sin. And we see the justice and the holiness of God. Was the old world drowned with the flood because of sin? Were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by fire and brimstone because of godlessness? Were plagues sent upon Egypt and was Pharaoh drowned along with all of his godless fighting men because of sin? Do you still think that the thrice holy God is a friendly God, fatherly old soul who smiles at our indiscretions? You do? Do you really still believe? Do you believe that... (coughs) Do you believe that heresy, that God hates sin but loves the sinner? You do? Then come with me and go to Golgotha. Stand there and think with me 
that God's own son was made sin for us and as consequence he was abandoned by God because he was laden with sin your sin and mine to say that God hates sin but loves a sinner is simply not true God does hate sinners you are not a God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, for you hate all evildoers. Psalm 5. Or the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 11. And so it is just not true to give the impression that God doesn't hate sinners by saying he loves the sinner but hates the sin. He does hate sinners. His wrath is real. We need to be more careful with the cliches that we choose to use. People got because Jesus was now a sinner. God, because of his own holiness, couldn't even look at him. You cannot separate the sin from the sinner. God hates sin. And if God sees sin in you, God hates you. Your only hope is the cleansing power of that blood being spilled there on Golgotha's hill. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God abandoned Christ because of God's hatred for sin. Allow me a brief interjection here. I do not want to spend a lot of time on it. But there's one thing that we need to capture for a moment. The question arising in our minds here in all of this as we exposit the words of Christ becomes this. Why is it now that Christ cries, why? He says, why? Why hast thou forsaken me? Did Christ, being Christ, not know the answer? To answer that question, we need to ask and answer a prior question. We need to ask, how long would it be required of Christ to be obedient to God as a man? We know the answer. Of him it was required that he would obedient, serving and trusting God until the bitter end. And we now see the sharp contrast between the words of Christ earlier and the words here on the cross. Formerly in John 11, Christ confesses that God hears him always. And now he cries, as we see in Psalm 22, I cry, but you do not hear me. Earlier he had said in John 8, the Father has not left me alone. Now he cries out, why have you forsaken me? People of God, in order to understand all of this, we need to see that Christ here suffers in his humanity. Christ suffers here as a man. Man had sinned, and man must pay. Christ, now suffering as a man, had nothing left but his faith in his Father. And here in his anguish, we see him still demonstrating his faith in God. Obedient to the bitter end, God had withdrawn from him. Jesus cries out in anguish as a man, why? But, but, but it was a cry of distress, but not a cry of distrust. For we also hear, my God. As a man, Jesus cried out in his anguish that God was still his God. My God, why have you forsaken me? His faith as a man, his faith in God triumphed, even his bitter anguish and, and the darkness. People God, what an example our Lord has left us with here. It's relatively easy to trust in God when the sun is shining and warming our backs, but the real test comes when all is darkness around us. And what we learn here is that a faith that does not trust God in adversity 
as well as in prosperity is not the faith of God's elect people. In order to have faith in which to die, we must also exhibit faith by which to live in all circumstances of our life, even when darkness envelops us and the raging storms threaten to consume us. Now finally, let us see here also amidst this darkness, the great grace, compassion, and the love of God towards us. God is holy. God will not, cannot look upon any sin. He is a just God. He hates sin and punishes where he finds it. But praise be to God. God is love as well. God delights in love and mercy. And therefore, because of his unfathomable love for us, God himself devised a way by which his justice might be met and a way by which at the same time he could show his love and his mercy to fallen and condemned men and women such as ourselves. It was by way of substitution. It was by way of the vicarious atonement. It was by way of the just dying for the unjust. The Son of God was selected to be the substitute for you and for you and for you and for me. No other blood would do. The prophet Nahum asks the question, who can stand before God's indignation? Who can live before his fierce anger? And the question was answered in the person of the very Son of God. He alone could stand. Only he could bear the curse of God and rise victorious. Only one, only one, only the one who was no less than divine would do, or as the poet expressed it so poignantly, not what my hands have done, can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all the prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. My dear precious, precious saints of God, such news cannot leave you cold, unmoved, or indifferent. Such love of God has got to thrill you to the very marrow of your bones. God's love, as we see it here on Golgotha, has to bring you to tears of repentance mingled with tears of exceedingly great joy. Such love of God has got to astound and amaze you. God's love has got to cause you to tremble and to leave you speechless in indescribable gratitude. What we see here is the boundless love, the inflexible justice, and the omnipotent power of God, all of it melding and blending into one loving God to make possible the salvation of men and women like you and I who would believe. Who can understand it? People of God, you've all heard of stories where a child darted out in front of a speeding car and a parent, a mother, a father, jumped out from the curb, pushed their child out of the way and gave up their own life in order to save their precious child. That now is exactly what God had done for you and me in Jesus Christ. On that cross, Jesus threw himself in front of you and me to receive the blows of God's wrath and anger that would have been mine and yours. 
Everything that takes place there on Calvary was intended for you. As Isaiah said it so wonderfully, he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. And the Lord laid the sin of us all upon him. It was our sin that he took upon himself. Had he not done so, God's wrath would have burned against us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know the answer. God forsook his own son in order that he might never forsake you and me. What a tremendous comfort and assurance his example holds for us. In every experience of distress, when our cries for help seem to ricochet and bounce off a heaven made of brass, when all is darkness around us, still in faith, we can throw ourselves into the gracious arms of a loving God. Even when we cannot find the words to pray, the Holy Spirit still prays for us. Jesus, here at the climax of Calvary, threw himself into the loving arms of his Father, and in so doing, blazed the trail for every lost and fallen man and woman who would believe in him. All hope in this world fails us. Enshrouded in darkness of sin and misery, all hope flees from us. The jaws of death open to receive us. The tentacles of Satan seek to lure us into hell. In that hour now, when the pangs, the pains, and the consequences of sin are revealed in our misery, when we know no way out, then the Lord has brought us to the place we need to be. And then he teaches us to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then our Lord, by his spirit, comes to us and says, Are you kidding? Forsaken you? How do you dare to even think such a thing? Look at that cross. I have forsaken him in order that I would never forsake you. Oh no, says God in his word, I will never forsake you. In your place stood my son. I have forsaken him in order that you might experience my love forever. Do you still doubt that? Then go to my word and listen carefully as you read. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. Oh no. On him, on his own son, he has laid the iniquity of us all. Therefore, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Because the son has cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You through faith in him, might place your trust in him in the assurance that a cry of God-forsakenness will never, ever be your cry. Shall we pray?